If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The Second Barons' War was one of the most remarkable episodes of the 13th century. It saw Henry III and his son, the future Edward I, thrown into captivity the emergence of one of medieval England's most controversial figures, Simon de Montfort, and a vicious denouement that would change the nature of aristocratic conflict for the next 200 years. Spencer Mizen sat down with Nicholas Vincent, Professor of Medieval History at the University of East Anglia, to discuss everything you ever wanted to know about the Second Barons' War. Nick, thanks for joining us today. We're here to talk about the Second Barons' War. Now, This is a conflict that involved some of the biggest names in medieval history, people like Henry III, Simon de Montfort, and the future, Edward I among them. However, I think it's a war that some of our listeners won't know a great deal about. So with that in mind, I wonder if I could start with a question that was submitted by the Posumator on social media. And that is, what was the Second Barons' War? Can you talk us through the chief milestones in this medieval conflict? Okay, so what was the Second Barons' War? It's seen as a dispute between the king and the barons that lasted from about 1258 through to certainly 1265, some would say it carried on pretty much to the end of the life of Henry II in 1272. But we've got a period there of seven years, or maybe a little bit longer, 
in which at various times we have a cold war or a hot war for brief periods between the barons and the king. And it's a war in which the barons effectively seize control of royal government through from 1258 through to 1261, and then again from 1264 to 5, followed by a very messy period thereafter, where there are parts of the country that are still controlled by the barons or castles or regions, with the king trying to reassert order. That's probably why people get very mixed up about all of this, because it's not quite like the English Civil War of the 17th century, where there's a very clear trajectory through a period of hot war in the 1640s. This is more a series of incidents from 1258 onwards, in which the barons take control of royal government, and in which, for various periods, the king is in effect placed under commission. And what were those main incidents? Can you talk us through two or three of them, just to give us a kind of broad outline of what happened? Okay, so we start in 1258 with a period of famine and Welsh war, during which the barons effectively refused to obey the king. A group of them, holding arm in arm, go into Westminster Hall and essentially armed, they're they're carrying their swords, they go into the king's presence and say, we've had enough of this. And what have they had enough of? Well, they've had enough of royal taxation, they've had enough of the king's incompetence, they've certainly had enough of the king's foreign friends, all of whom have been richly rewarded in England, and they've also had enough of the king's attempts to raise money to pay for his son, his youngest son, Edmund, to be put on the throne of Sicily. This is a completely lunatic idea that Henry III comes up with, that his youngest son, Edmund, will become king in southern Italy. There's never any real prospect of that happening, but the king is obliged to the Pope in an enormous sum of money. So they seize power and they issue what they call a series of provisions. They start with the provisions of Oxford and then we go on rather confusingly in 1259. Those are rewritten, but they remain basically the same as the provisions of Westminster. And those attempt to place a degree of baronial control over royal government. That's the start. By 1261-1262, the king has got the Pope's permission to annul those provisions. All the enthusiasm for this has rather drained away, all the spark has gone out of it, and the king re-seizes control in 1262. But one of the barons, a man named Simon de Montfort, remains loyal to the provisions. Now, we'll come on to him in due course. He probably has his own selfish reasons for all of this. But by 1263, Simon de Montfort is actually ensuring that there are regular attacks upon the king and the king's cronies. And by the spring of 1264, that's worked itself into a full-scale rebellion against royal government that amazingly, at the Battle of Lewis in Sussex on the South Downs, in May 1264, defeats the king in battle, takes the king prisoner, takes the king's brother, Richard, prisoner, takes the king's son, Edward I, prisoner. And for the next year, 
those royal captives are held in commission while Simon de Montfort, in effect, rules in the name of the king. And all of that comes to an end a year later, in August 1265. Edward I escaped from captivity in dramatic circumstances at Hereford. Simon de Montfort, with his allies in Wales, are then defeated at a great battle at Evesham in August 1265. Simon was killed at that battle. So if we want three events, the seizure of power in Westminster Hall in 1258, the Battle of Lewis, May 1264, and the Battle of Evesham, August 1265, those are the three great dramatic events of this period. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Great stuff. Now, I wonder if we can dig down a little deeper into the causes of the Second Barons' War, because as its name implies pretty heavily, this wasn't the first time in the 13th century that the monarchy and the baronry had sort of fallen out in quite spectacular style. So with that in mind, Adam Smith asks on social media, how is the Second Barons' War connected to the First Barons' War? And Susie1340 wants to know, can some of the causes be attributed to Henry III not adhering to the terms of Magna Carta? Okay, those are both good questions. So the linkage, as you quite rightly say, Spencer, is that that these are both baronial rebellions. If you're going to organise a political rebellion against the king, the only people really who can do it are the most powerful of the barons. So there's a direct connection there. There's also a direct connection in that both of these wars, both the war of 1215 through to 1217 against King John, Henry III's father, and the War of 1258 to 1265 against Henry III, King John's son, they're both led by powerful charismatic barons, and they both claim to be acting in the general interest of the realm. By the 1250s, 1260s, we begin talking about the community of the realm, but that idea of the community benefiting from this campaign was already present there in King John's reign. What else links them? Well, there are some personalities that are shared in common. So back in John's reign, when the barons wanted a leader against John, they're said to have named a man named Simon de Montfort. In fact, Simon de Montfort was busy fighting in France. He didn't play any role in that campaign in 1215. But he's the same man whose son, later Simon de Montfort, the younger Simon de Montfort, leads the barons after 1258. And likewise, the Clare family, Lords of Clare in Suffolk, but also by this stage, by the 1250s, Earls of Gloucester, they are prominent in both of those campaigns on the baronial side against the king. So there are personalities in common. And then there's the fact 
that in both cases there is a written manifesto, Magna Carta in 1215 and then these provisions in 1258 that go a long way beyond Magna Carta in actually seizing the patronage powers of the king. They take over the running of government in a way that Magna Carta entrusts government to the king under certain terms. That second question, was this done because the king wasn't adhering to Magna Carta? Well, that's a little bit complicated because by this stage, much of Magna Carta was itself pretty archaic. Many of the things that the barons of 1215 had complained about were no longer really major central issues here. But the idea that the king should not act against the law certainly was present. The idea that taxation should only be imposed with the agreement of the taxpaying, whatever we're going to call them, baronage church, that too is there in Magna Carta and looms large in the 1250s. And in those respects, Henry III was accused of breaching the terms of Magna Carta, of ruling for private interest, the interest of his family and his foreign favourites, rather than in the interest of the realm as a whole. Now, a question here from MHFQ also on social media is, was this a true civil war? Now, I'd like to expand on that question a little bit by asking, how would the Second Barons' War have impacted upon the ordinary people of England? Would they have paid a lot of attention to it, or would they kind of seen as a little bit of an aristocratic squabble? I think traditionally it's seen as an aristocratic squabble. But when you begin to drill down into the detail, there are regular involvements here by what we can only term as peasants, by townsmen and by the rural poor. So the famine of 1258 that precedes the seizure of power by the barons is a very important prompt to what happened thereafter, the desire to do good to the common people. And thereafter, we regularly find peasants co-opted generally onto the side of the barons. Even after the Battle of Evesham, there's a famous incident at Peatling Magna in Leicestershire, where a bunch of peasants arrest a friend of the king on the basis that this friend of the king is acting against the interest of the barons and of the community of the realm. So I think it's not simply a question of one elite group having an argument with another. Of course, politics are fought out within that political elite, but this does seem to have involved large numbers of people who are not part of that elite. The Londoners are crucial in the victory at Lewis. And later on, we get the involvement of peasant levies on the side of Simon de Montfort. We get the involvement of the Welsh. To some extent, there is a limited impact here on both Scotland and Ireland that are really quite reminiscent of what happens later in the 17th century, where, again, you could say that the 17th century civil war, if you want to turn the tables on all of this, isn't so much really about the common people. It's about a dispute within a still existing baronial elite. There are those who describe the civil war of the 17th century as the last great gasp of these baronial rebellions. So we've mentioned Simon de Montfort a couple of times. I mean, he was very much the leader of this rebellion, wasn't he? And the uprising coalesced around him. 
what kind of character was he? What made him such a successful leader initially, at least? Okay, he's not the sort of person that you want to invite to a boozy dinner party. He's an ascetic. He wore a hair shirt. He dressed only in russet. He didn't affect the fine costume of the court. He was in many ways a religious fanatic, and he had ancestry. So his father, as I've just said, was one of the heroes of the early 13th century. He'd led a bloody campaign against heresy, or what was described as heresy, in southern France, and had in effect made himself ruler of Toulouse. He's the hero of that movement we call the Arbogentian Crusade. And Simon the Younger seems to have followed in his father's footsteps. He had obviously a magnetism and a military capacity that the king himself clearly lacked. And he was in touch with many of the leading scholastic figures of his day, a man named Robert Grosstest, Bishop of Lincoln, a man named Walter Cantaloupe, Bishop of Worcester. These are the leading figures of reform within the church, and they back Montfort. He was an anti-Semite. He expelled the Jews from Leicester. He was Earl of Leicester, and more or less his first action on taking over was to expel the Jews, following very much in the footsteps of his father to persecute those groups that are seen as a danger to Christian good. But above all, he's a man of firm convictions. There are those who say he's a hypocrite that he merely did all this really in his own personal interest. He had five sons. His inheritance was by no means secure. He needed land. He needed money. And his own personal financial interests get very closely bound up in this developing campaign of reform from 1258 onwards. There are those who say he is a hypocrite. There are those, I think, above all, who say that he is a fanatic. And he has all of the charisma that fanatics often have. You know, he has a plan at a time when other people lack a plan. Now, you mentioned her charisma. You also mentioned in your answer that Henry III lacked that charisma. I wonder if you could briefly expand on that. I mean, what were the weaknesses in Henry's character that his, his enemies preyed upon during this period? The word that's used of Henry repeatedly is simplex. It's not quite simpleton, but it's heading in that direction. He's not a clever man. There's a famous story told by the Italian chronicler Salambene. The, the king was approached by a jester at court, and the jester asked the king, in what way, sire, do you resemble Christ? And the answer the jester gives is that you resemble him because you have no more wisdom now than you had at the age of 12. The king commanded that the jester be taken out of court and immediately hung. And the men around the king carried the jester out and then just let him go because they know that the king will forget almost immediately whatever order he's given. And you see there also this idea that the king is still a mere boy. Henry III came to the throne at a very young age. It's only seven when he came to the throne. And there is this constant sense with Henry that he never quite grows up, that he's always depended on people around him, powerful ministers who actually call the tunes. And by the 1250s, that includes his foreign half-brothers, the Lusignans. 
It includes his uncles by marriage, men from Savoy, and above all, perhaps, it includes his wife. There are those in the 1250s who say, if you want to know who wears the trousers at court, it's Eleanor of Provence, the king's wife. If you want anything done, where do you go? You go to the king's wife. All of this speaks to a temperament, to a character that isn't really charismatic, a bit like Charles I, Henry III was a great patron of the arts. He loves fine buildings, he loves architecture, he loves fine things. But he's not really got a very firm grasp on policy. And you can see that, Spencer, too, of course, in that bid for the throne of Sicily. This is a really daft idea. You're going to give the Pope 135,000 marks. That's an enormous sum of money. It might be 10 times the king's ordinary income. You're going to give that to the Pope to pay off the Pope's debts over Sicily, and then you're going to organise a campaign of conquest off your own finances to put your youngest son on the throne of somewhere that's thousands of miles away that no one really in the past has ever effectively controlled. So that money to the Pope is going to get you nothing but an empty title for which you're then going to have to take an army across Europe to storm this island. And all of that, really, the fact that Henry III gets embroiled in that so-called Sicilian business is yet further proof that he is simplex. Now, let's return to Simon de Montfort, because a really popular question among internet search queries is this. Is it true that de Montfort instigated the first English parliament? No, it's not true. So the idea of Parliament, and there's a great book on this by John Maddicott, The Origins of the English Parliament, really that, that idea of people gathering together to talk through the king's business takes us all the way back into Anglo-Saxon times before the conquest of 1066. And thereafter, we have regular meetings between barons and bishops and the great men of the realm and the king, where they talk, where they parley, parley from the French to talk, they parlay together. By the 1230s, we are beginning to see the word parlement, a place where people talk together, applied to the meetings of the king's councils. And by the 1250s, those parlements are meeting, even though the king himself was in France, they meet in England to discuss the king's business, and they begin to involve the Knights of the Shires, representatives of county communities today, those members of parliament come to London to meet with representatives of the baronage and the church. So what does Simon de Montfort do with parliament? Why is he seen as so important? Why is his statue outside parliament? Why did parliament itself hold great celebrations around the anniversary of Simon's seizure of power in 1264? The answer there is that in January 1265, after he'd seized power, after he'd imprisoned the king, for the first time ever, Simon de Montfort brought together a parliament that included not only the knights of the shires, but representatives of the English boroughs. And that borough and county constituency, which is to become throughout the 19th, 20th, 18th and backwards centuries, to become the basis of what we call the House of Commons, that is first called by Simon de Montfort in January 1265. But it's a desperate measure because it's a sign that really Simon had very limited 
authority within the baronage, within the church, within what we would call the House of Lords, and that he has to reach out in desperation to those commoners, the towns and the shires, in order to achieve political support. So it's really a desperate measure on his behalf in 1265 that makes him, if you like, the father of what later became the House of Commons. Sure. Now, there's someone else we need to talk about in this conversation, and that is, of course, the future Edward I, because it seems to me that the Second Baron's War really helped project him onto the national stage and, you know, he really came to the fore during this conflict. So can you talk a little bit about how important the Second Baron's War was in the evolution of the person who would become King Edward I? Okay, it is absolutely crucial. I mean, Edward begins this period being seen as a scapegrace, uh, you know, a bit like Prince Hal in the Henry IV plays, Shakespeare with Falstaff and all of that. What, what's he done? Well, he's broken a lot of windows. He's um, had a lot of rowdy parties. He's got a lot of young friends who are hot-headed. He's seen really in 1258 as a tool of these hated foreigners of the Lusignans. And although he'd been granted Ireland and Gascony to rule himself, he didn't effectively rule in either place. He relied upon councillors, he relied upon other people. By the end of all of this, by 1265, he's become that stark, charismatic, lawmaking figure that we know as England's Justinian, as the great King Edward who goes on to conquer Wales and attempts to conquer Scotland. I say he's a great figure. He's a great figure for the English. I'm not so sure he's a great figure for the Scots or the Welsh, save as a figure of hatred. But again, I think one of the great things that's emerged from the 20th century retelling of all of this story is the degree to which Edward then became, in effect, the pupil of Simon de Montfort. He kills Simon de Montfort at the Battle of Evesham. It's he who wins that great royalist victory and puts down the rebellion. And it's he, really, who allows all the reprisals thereafter, these very, very cruel treatments of Simon and his family and his followers. But in the process, he grasps the point that Simon has already grasped, that if you want popular support, if you want to manipulate politics, then you use the devices of this period, you issue reforming legislation, you issue new statutes, new laws, and you do that to manipulate the public to continue with the idea of parliament, now as a theatre of good royal government, in which you show yourself doing good, putting down evil ministers, locking up judges who don't do justice, doing all the things that Simon de Montfort did, but now in your own name as a truly reforming king. Now, you mentioned earlier that on Simon de Montfort's victory early in the war, that Henry III and his son Edward were both essentially locked up prisoners of de Montfort. How shocking a fact was that for onlookers at the time for a king to basically be incarcerated? What did the people of England and indeed continental Europe, what did they think of this this occurrence? I think it's really, it is a most extraordinary thing that happened. There had been situations previously where popular uprisings had deposed kings. 
We've got assassinations. We've got murders of kings. We've got rebellions against kings in Germany. A place like Hungary, this sort of thing is a fairly regular occurrence. In the 1240s, the Pope had deposed the King of Portugal and then gone on to try to depose the emperor, the German emperor ruling in Italy, Frederick II. So that sort of thing had happened before, but not the actual imprisonment, the incarceration of a king, and the seizure of power by a group of barons. That really is most unusual and had in the past only happened when the king himself was a small boy. It was the sort of thing you might do to a small child that you didn't do to an adult king. And it also explains it really is a terrible challenge to God because kings are made by God. They're God's appointed vicars on earth. So it's not surprising that the Pope sends a legate, that the King of France raises an army, that Henry III's wife, Eleanor of Provence, goes into France to raise troops to release her husband from captivity. The, the other kings of Europe really cannot put up with this sort of thing. This is something truly shocking. Where did it start going wrong for Simon de Montfort? You know, he'd secured himself a position of great power. He had the king and his son in captivity. And then within a few short years, it was all over and he was dead. Why was that allowed to happen? So it's really only 14 months of power for Simon, and it really goes wrong from the word go, because he's done something that you really cannot do. You cannot take the king prisoner. And that's something, obviously, that occurs later in English history. We get the captivity of Henry VI. We get the barons rising against Edward II, or later on against Richard II. The only way out there, if you really want that to succeed, the only way out would have been to kill the king. All the time the king is alive, he is a focus of potential revenge against Simon. And Simon does not take that step. He does not kill the king. He doesn't do the full Oliver Cromwell of the 17th century. You know, what can Cromwell do? By the time he realises that the king is never going to give up, the only thing you can do is to put the king on trial and have him executed. Simon doesn't do that. So from the word go... He lacks legitimacy. He is not a sovereign. He's not appointed by God, even though there are those who say that God gave him victory at Lewis because obviously the king had ruled badly. There are people saying that, but they're few and far between. He doesn't have much support within the political elite. He has really very few political allies amongst the great aristocracy. Gilbert de Clare the Earl of Gloucester, is about the only one, and he defects from Simon pretty early on. And although there are some bishops, some of the church, the Franciscans, seem to back Simon, probably the silent majority really don't much care for what's going on. So when did it go wrong from the beginning? And then, of course, it goes, if one can use that comparative, uh, it goes wronger still, because by the spring of 1265, the only allies that Simon can come up with are the Welsh. And the Welsh want a quid pro quo. They want a degree of independence under their Prince Llewellyn. And the Welsh are the hereditary enemies of the English. So Simon goes into Wales with his army 
um, really almost as a captive of the Welsh. And it's, it's that campaign in Wales against the marcher barons who've risen on behalf of the king. It's that campaign in Wales that strands Simon on the wrong side of the Severn and ensures what happens at Evesham in August 1265. OK, so let's talk about Evesham in a bit more detail then. What happened there? And is it true that the Montfort's killers hacked off his testicles and dispatched his body parts around the country? Certainly that second bit, yes, and we'll come to that. Um, what happened there... Simon realises that he's going to have to make a stand, just as at Lewis. Nobody thought that Simon de Montfort would win that battle at Lewis, except for Simon de Montfort. So if God was on his side, the only way of doing this is to test it in battle. He believed also that he would get support from his son, confusingly another Simon de Montfort, who at this stage was at Kenilworth with a large garrison. But Edward I had got to Kenilworth first and taken Simon, or at least forced Simon's men, to enter the castle. The castle was under siege. So at Evesham, Simon the Earl of Leicester, the leader of the rebellion, saw the flags approaching in the direction of Evesham and thought initially that they were the flags of his son coming to his rescue from Kenilworth, but then immediately realised that they're the flags of Edward I and his army. And we're told he sees Edward I mustering his troops and says something along the lines of, how well this man behaves, how well I have taught him. In other words, he realises that the game is probably up. And there are all sorts of omens, there's a great storm. The banner of Simon de Montfort's army breaks as Simon leaves the town gate at Evesham. That too is seen as a sign of impending doom. And on the battlefield itself, Simon and his followers are hacked to pieces. Now, as for the mutilation of his body, that's a shocking event. And it's a sign of the degree of vengeance, revenge, hatred that had grown up over the previous, you'd like to say the previous few, but in fact these, these antagonisms go all the way back to Simon's first arrival in England in the 1220s. Uh, from the word go, uh, there are signs that relations between him and the royal family are not going to be good. But there are plenty of people who have vendettas against Simon who are quite happy to hack his body apart. And we're talking real mutilation here. His, his testicles and his sexual organs are cut off and stuffed in his mouth. It, this is, this is you know, like the, the barbarities of, of North America in the 19th century. This is the Battle of the Little Bighorn, if you like. And his hands and his feet are hacked off and his head is cut off. This is the unleashing of the sort of violence that previously the high aristocracy did not face. And in many eyes, it marks the moment where that sort of violence crosses the species barrier from the peasantry into the high aristocracy. It's seen by many as the first step on the road to violence and mutilation and mutual vendettas that are to produce those terrible incidents of the reign of Edward II, later on the deposition of Richard II, later on the Wars of the Roses. If you like all of that political violence within the political elite, 
starts at Evesham in August 1265. So the second Baron's War in some ways sort of sets a bloody, brutal template for what was to follow over the following two centuries. Yeah. And, and Spencer, back to that same point, I think it shows anyone who is disaffected with royal government that even if you capture the king in battle, even if you make him a prisoner, he's never going to go away. If you're going to win that sort of revolution, you have to cut off the king's head. You have to kill the king. So it, it's not just amongst the high aristocracy that it, it introduces that new form of political violence. It's also in dealings with the king. So when they depose Edward II in 1327, what can they do with him? They have to kill him. When they depose Richard II in 1399, what can you do with him? The only thing you can do is kill him. One final question, Nick. If there was one way in which the Second Barons War changed England and one reason that we should pay attention to it today, what is that? Law. Edward I learns from this period the lesson that if you want to be seen to rule as a good king, you have to issue what are seen as good laws. And so we get a flurry of legislation from the late 1260s onwards, with Edward very much inspiring all of that, beginning with the so-called Statute of Marlborough, which in effect reissues under the king's name a lot of the reforming decrees of the 1250s and 60s, the provisions of Oxford, the provisions of Westminster. And then we go on through the reign of Edward I with a whole series of statutes, the statutes of Westminster, the statute of Gloucester, and so on and so forth. The law book begins to fill up with legislation. And we also get a parliament manipulated by the king as a theatre of good government, but a parliament that now calls representatives of the boroughs and the shires. Edward I takes on this experiment that Simon de Montfort had so propelled. He takes it on. We get a parliament that's there to hear petitions from the country against wrongdoing by the barons, by the king, by the king's officers. And parliament takes on this role as a place where right can be done, where um, petitions can be heard and answered, where inquests can be initiated at that level without directly involving the king. So we begin to get the very first whispering of that shift of sovereignty, that shift of authority from the king in person through to the king ruling in parliament. To begin with, it's a very faint whisper because the king, when the king doesn't like what parliament's doing, he just shuts parliament down. But it's there and it probably wouldn't have been there had those events of the 1250s and 60s, the Second Baron's War, not unfolded as they did. That was Nicholas Vincent, Professor of Medieval History at the University of East Anglia. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. Thank you.